Сан. Четыре. You're tuning in to Don't Sleep New York, a podcast for the New Yorker who wants to stay up on policy and politics in the city that never sleeps. My name is Arpon, and I'm joined by Matt and Rana Joy. We're three New Yorkers who are trying to become more informed about the inner workings of our city, and we want to take you along for the ride. Before we get started, like, subscribe, and follow Don't Sleep New York on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. So let's get into things. In our last few episodes, we talked about Democratic mayoral candidates Andrew Yang and Maya Wiley. At the time of this recording, some polls have Andrew Yang leading, but depending on who you ask, there's one candidate who might actually be in front, Eric Adams. But it was not until uh, my brother and I were beat by police officers in the 103rd precinct, the precinct that Sean Bell was actually shot and killed in. And I was angry for a long time. And it was, uh, there was an incident that involved a person named Randolph Evans. He was shot by a housing cop. Sure, 1974, I remember that. Yeah. There you go. And then later, Arthur Miller, uh, I believe it was 1978, was killed on Avenue. Reverend Herbert Daughtry and others, uh, they, they got tired of fighting from uh, the outside that they later assembled uh, 13 of us. In, in the basement of the House of the Lord's Church and told us that they wanted us to go into law enforcement and fight from within. That was Eric Adams talking to Errol Lewis on his podcast about pretty much how he got started in this political path. Yeah, and Eric Adams frames himself as really the local candidate. He's from Brooklyn. He's currently the Brooklyn Borough President. Like Arpon said, how he got started in politics was through the NYPD, which spawned out of an incident when he was 15 years old where he was actually beaten by the police rather than take that anger and maybe try to fight the police. He was convinced to join the police department and attempt to reform it from within. And I think that type of attitude frames a lot of the ways that he has been as a politician for the last 30 or so years, right? Yeah, and so where did he go next after that? He served in the NYPD for 22 years, rising up to captain. He then served on the New York State Senate, representing District 20 for two terms. And then he ran for Brooklyn Borough President, which brings us to today. And he's been serving as Brooklyn Borough President for two terms and is now standing up for mayor. I say this over and over again, and I want it to continue to resonate. Uh, Public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity. Uh, We must be safe. And my son and the sons of New Yorkers uh, won't grow up in the city that I grew up in when we were having 2,000 homicides a year. And it wasn't that we were unsafe. That wasn't the real tragedy. What What the real tragedy was is that we accepted not being safe. So as Eric Adams said in that clip, he believes the most important department within the city is the police department. And this belief and what he has to say about the police department and reforming the police department are what I would consider his campaign cornerstones because he sets himself apart from the rest of the pack in his rhetoric and in his ideas around the department. Arpan or Aranajoy, do you want to specify some of that? Yeah, sure. So the number one driver in his view, 
in crime is gun violence. He wants to address gun violence to make this a safer city and a more prosperous city. One of the controversial ideas he has, like you mentioned, that makes him unique is he wants to bring back the anti-crime unit. Yeah, which, as we know, last summer was actually a big policy change to disband the anti-crime unit amidst protests, calls for defunding the police, calls for police reform in general. So it's interesting that, you know, he's really taking that stance. And and it's important to note, no other mayoral candidate right now is really taking that stance. Andrew Yang has said that he might... He's been lukewarm. He's been lukewarm about it. He said he might consider it. Um, Wait, before we go too far with this topic, anti-crime unit... Anti-crime, sounds good. What is actually the problem with the anti-crime unit? So the the anti-crime unit is the plainclothes police officers who are dispersed into typically lower-income communities, uh, historically have been known to be... With one goal, to get rid of guns on the street. Exactly. And historically have been known to uh, kind of revert to violence, specifically targeting young black and Latino men. It, you know, might help contextualize things for some listeners to know that, uh, one of the, the officers involved in Eric Garner's death was an anti-crime unit member. And this is a classic case of the incentive model has broken the process by which these individuals in the anti-crime unit operate. Their goal is to take off guns from the street at any cost, which has led to a lot of high-profile incidents. And I think the concerning thing is that his plan to bring this unit back and make it, quote-unquote, safer or more respectable to the public than it was before simply involves age-old ideas of, well, this unit won't be like the old unit. It'll be new people who are trained better. To me, that's not a new idea. We've tried that before. It doesn't work. There's a reason that we have rhetoric coming from the other participants running for mayor that's a little more extreme than that. And it's because these type of tactics of just saying plainly, well, we'll re-educate the police department seem to fail over and over again. Yeah, it's a symptomatic of a larger picture where he really focuses on the bad apples rather than the rotten tree. He has other policies that kind of fall suit. For example, have records public for all kinds of complaints for versus cops, which I actually think is a great idea and we should do regardless with this with this explicit purpose of, oh, let's weed out the bad. We'll leave the good. He also ha- wants to put a whistleblower hotline so it's easier having been on inside, understanding how difficult it is to basically raise issues in that culture to have a whistleblower hotline to be able to, again, identify the bad cops, to rid the bad cops of what he views as an overall like generally good system. Yeah, which is, you know, it's He's a cop at the end of the day, right? That was his first career was as a cop. Now, during his tenure in the NYPD, he was known to shake that tree a little bit, whether it was a good tree or a bad tree. Um, He was part of campaigns and movements to diversify the NYPD. He was uh, part of an organization called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. He's continuously pushed for diversification of the NYPD. But again, it depends on, you know, what stance you can take on this is can you reform the NYPD, which he truly believes you can. So I want to take the NYPD conversation a slightly different direction here. One of the big things that he harps on about the defund the police movement and a lot of other movements around not just reforming the NYPD, but really changing the nature of it. Um, he, he often mentions that those movements are led by outsiders. They're not led by people from the city. 
it's all, he, he claims it's often led by white liberals who don't really understand. Now, I think I can push back a little bit on that at first by just saying there are other candidates in this very mayoral race who are people of color, namely Maya Wiley and Diane Morales, who are very for a lot of programs that would reimagine the police, not just attempt to reform it from within. Yeah, I think he appreciates that. And, and I guess everyone can appreciate talking about the police and police reform is a very nuanced topic. He's not afraid to delve into it. He has some similar ideas that, hey, let's better define what the gun-wielding cops do. Let's not have them do paperwork. Let's cut OT so the general budget is less. He wants more community involvement. He speaks to the community should have some influence over who are the head of the precincts. He kind of wants to center the community around the NYPD precinct. Actually, Rana Joy, to your point, his take on turning NYPD precincts into pseudo-community centers is such a, a juxtaposition to what Maya Wiley talks about, right? Of centering politics and policy in neighborhoods around actual community centers. He he sort of sees that vision, but he also thinks that the NYPD could be part of that vision, which, again, it, it really begs the question of, you know, what role can the NYPD play in these communities and how open are communities to allowing NYPD yeah, to play that I role? Yeah, I think it's part of his larger idea of connecting community with police, and this is a very uh, on-the-nose solution or on-the-nose idea to try to address it. Right, and I think one thing that... It's tough for, I think, any of us sitting here to comment on is I think all of us believe in some more extreme reform of the police department or some defunding of the police department. But none of us actually know what it's like to grow up in a poorer neighborhood in Brooklyn or live in one of those neighborhoods now and have to deal with higher instances of crime around us. And I know he has some support from those communities and listening to podcasts and interviews he's been on where people have called in and said as much. They've said, I'm from the uh, neighborhood of Brownsville in Brooklyn. We would actually like more police. And that type of rhetoric seems counter to what we've heard. And by it's we. It's also one of them elections. He's and it's the one Brooklyn elections, borough president, yeah. two terms. Yeah. And by we, I say young, very liberal, yuppie type of people. The gentrifiers. And, and, and mainstream media, though. You and know, yeah. that, that's the. You don't really hear about people saying we want police in mainstream media because, well, you're not going to get clicks that way. Right. And so it's hard for me speaking as a white person who did not grow up in New York City to come in here and say, Eric Adams, you're a clown. You don't understand how policing works. Like we actually need to defund. I don't really know how to participate in that conversation necessarily. I look to other leaders. And again, there's other candidates within this race who I think speak really well on this topic. But I do think it would be perhaps irresponsible, at least of myself, to completely dismiss everything that Eric Adams is saying. Right? Yeah, I think succinctly put, we don't disagree with the idea. I think there's importance. Gun violence is an issue. We need to address it. It's just the ideas he brings up aren't really looking to resolve it. They're tested ideas that haven't worked. And, and I feel like what most people, whether you sit on the defund the police train or you sit on the reform the police train... What what most people can agree on, I think, is that that reform is not about individual actors within the NYPD. If you're reforming or you're defunding or you're abolishing the police, it's about the system overall. And the question, I think, for Eric Adams is how much of his policies or even his intent is meant to reform the system overall. 
Because again, like you said earlier on, Joy, he's really focused on bad apples, not rotten tree. And that's what gives me pause. But again, I need to check myself a little bit because I don't have the same experiences that he does. And so he very well may be right on some issues. But from everything I've read and from the people that I follow, it seems to be that he's a little bit behind on the ways that we now know are more effective in addressing police or, issues. Or some would say a bit more right rhetoric. Another department of the city that Eric Adams calls a lot of focus on is the Department of Education. He is very focused in on providing the right start to a child's life. He speaks to the first thousand days of a child's life as the most pivotal in their development. And he kind of addresses it in a few different categories. One, which is diet and nutrition. Two is mental health. And then three is actual schooling. So I know one thing that he's a big proponent of is for testing for dyslexia at a really early age, which again, as running for mayor candidate, that sounds almost oddly specific to bring up. But I, I like that he has those specific ideas around education. And Arpan, you want to talk a little bit as well about some of his food policy plans that do relate to education, but also kind of tie into who he is as a person? Yeah, so uh, Adams is a known diabetic who really credits his reversal of his type 2 diabetes to switching to a plant-based diet. So he actually wrote a book about this experience called Healthy at Last. And he really is pushing for, the reason we're talking about this within the, the scope of education is he's thinking about child, adolescent, and health, and the, the government-issued food that children receive, let's say, through schools needs to be reformed. We shouldn't be feeding kids really unhealthy white bread, yeah, for example. Or, or through any other government program or social welfare system. He also speaks to adjusting the school system, kind of getting rid of the summer. We're no longer agrarian economy, so we need to have learning even if it's remote learning over the summer that are focused in on life skills that children need, such as financial literacy. One thing, though, to, to keep in mind there, and I don't know if we've seen very specific rhetoric from Eric Adams on how would he actually implement extending the school year. There's three audiences, let's say, that really matter in that. There's parents who will probably be pretty excited about that, whether you're a low-income family or you are a w more well-off. This is childcare essentially right it, it's you know we don't get the summers off from our jobs so it's a lot easier for parents to have kids taken care of in childcare. then you have the students it, that sucks <laughs> you have a longer school year Dep it depends on the engagement right some of these could could be interesting for kids sure okay and, and that'll come down to programming right but then you have teachers and we have talked about this outside of our pod. We've discussed Matt's sister as a teacher, for example. And as it stands today, teachers just aren't receiving the support that they need from New York City and from the DOE, which is why there's a huge turnover rate of teachers. So it's, a, it's another instance, in my opinion, of the system is broken and you can't solve that by you know saying, OK, we're going to fix education by having more school without first addressing some of the more systemic issues within the education system. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. Like, this needs to be paired with other solutions, like two teachers or better ratios with students, et cetera. But he's a big believer in year-long education to get us prepared. So why don't we talk a little bit about his history as a politician in New York? So he served in the state Senate. 
He's been Brooklyn Borough President. He has certain views, uh, for example, his strong support of the real estate industry. When you look at uh, our economy here, what oil is to Texas, uh, development is to New York. Uh, our real estate industry pays 51% of, of our taxes, and we need to think about that. And so the next mayor must be a unifier. Eric Adams is no stranger to receiving funding from real estate lobbyist groups and from developers. Um, and he's not afraid to say that either. Yeah, I think he's taken a pretty strong stance on talking about how real estate drives the New York City economy. And so he wants to be, whether it's a partner, whether it's a beneficiary. Uh, and I of think what you're alluding to is there has been reporting about certain coincidence of timing of donations by certain development companies and certain developments in Brooklyn, for example, moving forward. Yeah, he's certainly not without scandal. And I know he's been confronted by this in multiple interviews. And one answer I've heard him give, which I'll uh, immediately say I, I find to be suspect is that he was asked, well, why are they giving you these donations if they don't expect you to do something about it? And his answer is, well, you know, the, the big real estate interests don't just care about zoning and development. They do care about public safety. They care about education because those things are also good for their bottom line. And I'm not saying he's entirely wrong, but they care about zoning. They care about building a building that they can project a revenue model for within the next five years. I'm sorry, public safety and education is like a 10, 20 year investment for them. It's just naive and silly for him to suggest that the real estate donations that his campaign receives are not for any expectation of currying favor. Yeah, and I think that segues into one of the housing policies he's been quite vocal about, which is selling the air rights over the NYCHA buildings. And so just to, to back up a little bit, Ranjit, can you explain what is selling, what, what do air rights mean in the realm of housing? Sure. Just to keep it very simple, every zoning district has a specific height you can build up to. So let's say 50 stories. If a building that exists in that zone is not 50 stories, so let's say 10 stories, they're able to sell the rights to build that extra 40 to some other building in that zone. So while that building stays 10 stories, the other building could potentially be 90 stories because they have bought the air rights. And so when it comes to Eric Adams' housing policy, he's not entirely wrong here when you do the math. He thinks that there's billions of dollars worth of air rights above New York City Housing Authority. This building. isn't a new idea necessarily. Like de Blasio was supportive. There have been some instances where air rights have already been sold. Yeah. So he's saying, hey, if we allow NYCHA buildings to sell their air rights to none other than private developers, then we'll be able to actually fund NYCHA a lot better with billions of dollars in revenue from those air rights. What he doesn't mention, though, is, you know, Yes, you're able to fund the existing NYCHA buildings, but as we talked about in our affordable housing episode, you're also then giving a ton of space and real estate, which will likely be in poorer neighborhoods because that's where NYCHA buildings are, are more centralized to private developers. Which then leads to further gentrification, which further alienates those black and brown kids that he lamented didn't get education that was good enough. It. This, all these elements of the city are very connected. And in fact, a, a big thing he talks about is the inefficiency between the connection of all those departments. And yet again, I hate to criticize uh, this in, in such a negative way, but it sometimes seems like he doesn't himself understand the way all of these things are connected. It's not so simple as, okay, I sold the air rights. 
now I have a bunch of money so I can repair the NYCHA housing. But what long-term effects am I yeah, allowing to happen? I mean, to to give him the benefit of the doubt or to at least maybe play devil's advocate to this is these are just some of the catchy policies he has. I agree that he should be following that up with, hey, I'm also going to put in a policy, for example, that requires these developers to make affordable housing that addresses the 0 to 30% AMI bracket. That should be the quote that follows it. But we can say that of other candidates as well. Some of their catchy ideas aggregated alone might just cause more issues than actually resolve root yeah, issues. Yeah, and, and, and again, I don't think it's it's worth being all negative. Um, and, and if anything, maybe the negative point is his inconsistency. But he has done some good things even around housing and around fighting against the, the NIMBY crowd. I believe in 2017, he was actually fought for the maintenance or the creation of a homeless shelter in Crown Heights, uh, which was something the local community was strongly against in, in that NIMBY attitude. He was also instrumental in bringing City Bike to all of Brooklyn, including the lower income communities. So to give them an alternative source of transportation, he has been very progressive when he was in the Senate. He was a very ardent supporter of gay rights before it passed finally in 2011. Yeah, his record is certainly not without its successes, right? I don't I don't think he wouldn't get to, here without without yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um and and I think just to wrap up on the housing point, I think something that we again had mentioned in our affordable housing episode that a lot of other candidates have touched on is the way that de Blasio's policy was too broad in targeting affordable housing and in reality it went largely to median income. Broad is putting it very nicely yeah it just hit it missed the target yeah exactly and a lot of the more progressive candidates have called that out and have called for housing to be implemented for those who most need it eric adams is not one of those candidates his campaign literature itself simply says housing for all who need it and so that's something i don't like to see i prefer if he would call out specifically the nature of the failures of affordable housing. I don't know whether that's something on his mind anyways, but again, all we can do is reference the campaign literature. Yeah, I think just to call out some of our biases for us three, like we're definitely looking for someone a bit more progressive. That's not Eric Adams. He's coined himself as the pragmatic candidate. On top of that, uh, something that's not in vogue right now is someone who spent a lot of time in politics. I think what is in vogue is an outsider coming in with a new perspective on things. And again, that's not really coming through in his campaign, nor does he really sell that as who he is. And it seems to be working for him. Like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, he's been pretty much neck and neck with Andrew Yang in the limited polls that we have. Now, obviously, the polls can only mean so much. But as we get closer to the June 22nd primary election, It'll be really interesting to see where he lands. He has fundraised more than any other candidate. The deepest war chest, as they say. And has spent the least so far. And and just to kind of draw a parallel to Yang, we said, you know, his short presidential campaign put him in a really good position with brand recognition. Same way with Eric Adams. He is the second term borough president of the biggest borough in New York City. This episode is not an exhaustive look at Eric Adams' campaign and policies, but we hope it helps you kickstart your own research into his candidacy. And if it wasn't clear from this episode, Don't Sleep New York is not endorsing Eric Adams. But as we lead up to the primary election in June, 
we are really interested in following his campaign closely. In the next few weeks, we'll be doing similar episodes about the other mayoral candidates, helping you get started on your own research as you head to the voting booth. To stay up to date on the mayoral election, candidates, and how it's going to affect New York City, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DontSleepNY. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your podcasting platform of choice. It really does help us out. The music you heard in this episode was provided by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. We'll see you all in a few weeks. Until then, don't sleep.